Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, if you find yourself checking your phone a lot or feeling phantom vibrations, there's a good reason. Big technology companies, Google, Apple, Amazon, and Facebook, to name a few, want your attention. They want to know what you're thinking about, what you're doing, and what you're likely to do next. Author Franklin Foer came to Seattle at the dawn of the digital age to work for Slate magazine. He's back now with some serious warnings about what that age has wrought. If you're concerned about your personal freedom and privacy in a time when a small group of companies enjoy vast and growing control over your data and decision-making, buckle up for a thought-provoking and challenging talk. Franklin Foer is a staff writer at The Atlantic and former editor of The New Republic. His latest book is World Without Mind, The Existential Threat of Big Tech. He spoke at the Elliott Bay Book Company on September 27th. Thank you to Sonia Harris for our recording. Here, Elliott Bay's Tony Mano introduces the event. Thank you all for being here tonight at the Elliott Bay Book Company. Uh, Tonight, we are very pleased to be joined by Franklin Foer, who is here tonight to discuss his new book, World Without Mind, The Existential Threat of Big Tech, which was just released this month by Penguin Press. Uh, The story of tech that Franklin unfolds in this book extends further back than Apple or Microsoft or Amazon, Uh, back to the philosophy of the Enlightenment, to the printing press, to yellow journalism coming from the 19th century, and to the purveyors of a West Coast utopian thinking epitomized by the communes of the 60s. These uh, set the cultural groundwork for our current age of technology, an age of worldwide interconnectedness and new opportunities to express ourselves as individuals. Meanwhile, a reevaluation of antitrust law and our collective redefinition of what constitutes a monopoly has given only a few tech companies almost complete reign over this quasi-utopian dream. World Without Mind chronicles the lead up to this new way of life, as well as the threat that this concentration of power holds for us today, much of which may come as no surprise to Seattleites. Uh, Franklin is a national correspondent for The Atlantic and a fellow at the New America Foundation, as well as a recipient of the National Jewish Book Award. He is also the former editor of The New Republic, an experience that is at least partially chronicled in this new book. His book, How Soccer Explains the World, was a national bestseller. Uh, After Franklin's presentation, we'll open up the floor for some questions, and books will be available for sale in the back and for signing as well. So without further ado, please welcome Franklin Foer. Uh, thank you. I, I'm I'm really happy to be in Seattle because Seattle is in some ways the starting point for, for this book, for me at least, because my first job out of college was working for Microsoft. More specifically, my first job out of college was working for Slate, which was the first internet magazine, or it, if not the first, it was the, the most hyped of the early internet magazines because... Michael Kinsley, who'd been the editor of The New Republic, which is also part of the saga, uh, came out to Seattle. And there was a goofy picture of him on the cover of Newsweek wearing a yellow rain slicker and a yellow hat holding up a fish about how Seattle was the next hot city. And when I, yeah. Um, uh, and so when, when I came out here, uh, we, we, Slate was like in week two of its existence. And um, Microsoft had created an entirely separate campus to house its nascent media empire. Um, And so the the Red West campus at Microsoft 
was meant was filled with all these magazines that Microsoft had created. There was a woman's magazine called Underwire, which, <laughs> yeah, perhaps explains why that was a doomed venture. <laughs> there was there was an automobile magazine. They were going to try to kill the stranger in Seattle Weekly and all the other alt weeklies by creating something called Sidewalk, um, and um, Slate, of course survives, but all the other ones met, the, met untimely deaths. Uh, and we'll, we'll get back to that in, 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 in a minute, because that also tells us a little bit something about this story. But um, I've got a very apocalyptic thesis, at least that's the way that it's been characterized, which I suppose is only fair if you call your book World Without Mind, the existential threat of big tech. Um, but rather than bludgeon you over the head with my thesis, I'll, I'll bludgeon you in a bit. I'm going to digress my way um, to the thesis of the book by just telling you, just picking up the, the, the thread of the narrative of my own personal story and trying to use that a little bit as a parable for uh, what I'm talking about. So um, after I was, I, I was with Slate, I went to work for a magazine called The New Republic, which was this little magazine. It had at its height 100,000 readers. It was, uh, it was this weird alchemy of insider political reporting, high-minded, often contrarian uh, pieces about political ideas, and very long cultural essays about highbrow things. And it was the type of thing that you would never invent again, but it was just like a weird, it was a historical amalgamation that existed and found a very cult-like readership. In fact, I read a history of the 1960s once, which described, it was trying to explain how um, small a sect American liberals actually are. And it said you could fit the readers of the New Republic into the University of Mississippi football stadium, and there would still be room. Um, <laughs> and so, um, so we, uh, this it was this quirky magazine that prided itself on uh, being original, and maybe sometimes it was too original in its ideas. Um, and I was working there, and I became editor of the magazine in 2006. And it was a really hard time to be the editor of any any media outlet because media was being convulsed. Um, you had two. Re you ultimately had two recessions: the one in 2000 and the one in 2008 that crushed the advertising market, and the disappearance of the advertising market remade American journalism. Um, there were hundreds of thousands of jobs lost in American journalism. And I think you know this in Seattle, where you've seen um, various arms of your local media atrophy um, over the course of the last couple of decades. Um, and so how to navigate this new world? I really, really struggled with it because we wrote opinion and suddenly there were blogs and, and everybody, had act, everybody had an opinion and everybody had a microphone to express their opinion. And so the question was, how much do we, we play in this new world? And we just, we just struggled. And uh, I kept, we kept having to find new benefactors for the magazine. And so I was always going up to New York to try to hoodwink investment bankers into uh, believing that they could actually make a profit on this magazine. One of my heart of my hearts, I knew that that was that was really <laughs> not possible, um, and so I got exhausted by this process of searching for new owners and trying to figure out how to master the internet. And I went back to writing. And then in 2012, um, it was this mystical savior entered, um, a guy called Chris Hughes, 
Um, Chris had been Mark Zuckerberg's roommate at Harvard, and he had been he he co-founded Facebook. He was he was one of its first employees, and he became fantastically wealthy at a very young age. And so this 28-year-old guy walked into the New Republic and said, "I have deep pockets. I'm committed to serious journalism, and I can help you figure out." This new world because I invented social media, and it sounded it was it was dreamy from from my perspective. I couldn't I couldn't believe my good luck, and I came back to the New Republic to edit and work with Chris, and we were going to try to we were going to try to find some sort of dignified way to try to s solve all the problems that ailed journalism, and it started off kind of beautifully, um, where we we did very exhilarating things like we tried to figure out how to create. Um, an anti-website website. Because if you, if you read the web, one of the things that happens on any website is you keep scrolling down, 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 down. There's an infinite number of things for you to read. And we thought, let's just impose the values of a magazine on the web, where there's hierarchy and finitude and a clear sense if you go to a web page of this is the most important thing and we're going to make sure that you read the most important thing. And um, it was, it was really fun to think like this, but it was totally ineffectual. <laughs> and so Chris kind of had this dream that we would, we, would, we would present this new idea and people would instantly flock to it, and that's not the way that the world works, unfortunately. And so um, we were publishing great journalism because I had huge resources. And so in, uh, before anybody, in 2013, I, sent somebody, I could send somebody to Burma to write about the Rohingya. Um, when, and it just felt like a privilege to be able to do something like that, to really, I was living the dream. I was committing resources to uh, projects that seemed important and, and giving writers time and space to write with uh, style and flair. And there was, craftsmanship was the ideal. I felt like it was like a Brooklyn cheese shop or maybe, a, 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 you know, a Pike Street burrito stand or something where I was doing it the art, artisanal way. Um, which was really great. But then the inevitable happened, which is Chris said, we're spending too much money. We need to, we need to, we need to produce revenue. And the way to produce revenue is to grow web traffic. The way to grow web traffic in a very quick sort of way is to produce, produce writing, produce content, uh, to use the term of art, that will flourish on Facebook. And luckily, he invented Facebook. So um, he said, I know the tricks. Um, and you, you start off in this sort of process saying, okay, we can, we can do this in a way that doesn't really damage our soul. Um, uh, but let me tell you. Um, and so, so, so we started. And the thing that he wanted us to produce was what he called snackable content. All right, that's, it, it's, a, it, it's a, it, admittedly a horrible term and admittedly kind of a horrible concept. Um, but it, the idea was that um, when, you're sitting on, you, when you're sitting on a subway platform and you're looking at your phone and you just want to decompress, you want the kind of the journalistic equivalent of Doritos uh, that you can kind of just munch on and, and, um, and decompress. And so how do you do this? Well, um, first of all, he said, look, Everybody is doing this. You shouldn't feel bad about doing this. Uh, all, the, all, the, all the cool kids are doing it. The Washington Post is doing it. Time Magazine is doing it. 
And um, what it involved was, first of all, you had to, you had to explore the data. <laughs> so uh, I had always paid a little bit of attention to how many issues a magazine sold on the newsstand. I'd always had access to the web traffic. But this becomes an obsession because the goal is so immediate. You have to produce, you have to produce traffic, and the and 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 that's a daily struggle. It's an, in fact, it's an hourly struggle or a minute-to-minute struggle. And there's a device that I had called Chartbeat, and this this exists in every newsroom in America. If you walk into the Washington Post, for instance, there are big screens sitting up in the newsroom that shows the popularity of any article at any given moment that shows how it's performing on Facebook. And so I had on my phone this Chartbeat app, and it was a flickering needle showing me you know, whether I was succeeding or failing at any given moment. <laughs> and it became an all-consuming cons- thing for me because, first of all, the health of the enterprise depended on us producing traffic. But also, um, I'm a human being, and if you show me that I, you know, this, this device that shows that I'm winning or losing at any given moment, I'm going to want to be winning. <laughs> and I, want, I, I, was not, I wasn't popular in high school. I had a chance now suddenly to be popular all the time. And so I, 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 this became, when I, it, it was addictive. As, as I, I, I'll get to the broader subject of addiction in a moment because I guarantee all of you suffer from it when it comes to technology. But for me, I would wake up in the morning, I would see how we were performing on Facebook, then I would check it again as I went downstairs to get coffee, and um, it was like it was it was almost a biological response. I was stuck in this feedback loop of trying to. I knew what was working, what wasn't working. I wanted to produce what was working, and I would argue that this is what happens. This is happening into the entire world of journalism, and in some respects, it's happening to the the world writ large. And so, in journalism. All of journalism is hugely dependent on two monopolies, Google and Facebook, for their financial health. And so everybody's playing the same sort of game. What happens? Well, if you want to be popular, everybody rushes to the same popular subjects. So if you look at Facebook or you look at Twitter, you see what's trending. You see what's on the upward ascent to becoming popular. And there's a whole variety of tools that you have at your disposal to understand the data, to understand the, 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 the mind of the internet so you can tap into it. One of these tools is called CrowdTangle, um, which, uh, I, you know, when you step back and you think about a lot of these things, they sound kind of cute and cuddly, but then you're like, man, that is ominous, CrowdTangle. I'm getting tangled up in the crowd as I produce these things. And there's one anecdote I have in the book um, about uh, just to, that, that highlights the ways in which this, this race for popularity creates homogenization. It creates this convergence. Um, there was, a, I don't know if you remember, a couple years ago, there was um, a, a celebrity lion called Cecil who was killed by a Minnesota hunter. And this Minnesota hunter pa- posted a picture of himself in front of, in front of, his, with, in front of his kill on, the inter- on Facebook, and the entire internet piled on to this guy. Maybe rightfully so. I mean, it's, it's not... It's not an attractive thing. But on the other hand, is it the most important story in the world? Well, there were 3.2 million stories written about Cecil the Lion, according to the New York Times. 
Um, and I, I would, I, and, and this is where I'm going to just start to, I'm going to start to broaden out into my argument. I would argue to you that Donald Trump is Cecil the Lion, that Donald Trump was, um, was clickbait. Donald Trump was, at least at the beginning, he was somebody that everybody in journalism knew that you shouldn't take seriously. This guy was, this guy's presidential campaign was treated as a joke phenomenon, you know, for the first couple times that he, he got into the, he got into this. It was treated as a joke phenomenon when, um, uh, but, but people kept giving him attention. When he talked about Obama's birth certificate time and again, he got on CNN and not just Fox News. And then, and then everybody, there, there was, um, there was a response. Everybody, Everybody in mainstream media uh, uh, was writing about this, even if they were criticizing Donald Trump for bringing up um, bringing up the birth certificate. They were giving him attention. They were giving him attention because he was traffic, because he was ratings, um, because he was Cecil the Lion. And so, I really think that um, I got into the subject of monopoly and the problems of these tech companies from this this experience. I saw number one the perils of dependence, that you have these big companies. And in my book, I write about four of them, Google, Facebook, Amazon, and Apple. And in, in, in various ways, shapes, and forms, we're dependent on these companies. Um, and when you become dependent on these companies, when they have the economic power that they have, they're able to thrust their values onto everybody who, who, who kind of lives and dies on the platform. They pick winners, they pick losers, and you have to play by their rules if you want to be a winner. And so um, this is a, an incredible problem for us when it comes to the functioning of markets because Amazon and Google play a huge role in the way that, that markets operate. Um, we, saw just, we saw this with Yelp as kind of the classic example of this um, where – once upon a time, if you typed in the name of uh, a coffee shop or a restaurant or an ice cream parlor, the first thing that would come up into the result was Google, uh, was, was Yelp, uh, was Yelp. And so you, you'd use Yelp reviews and Yelp built a business around this. And then Google said, well, damn, that's a good business. We should get in this business. It's so easy to do. And so Google got in the business. And lo and behold, the first thing that came up in the search engine was no longer Yelp. It was Google. So... Um, these platforms act as if they're neutral. The idea of a search engine is that it's mechanistic. There's no human fingerprints on the search engine. It's all algorithms. It's all math, which is somewhat true, but also completely phony because algorithms are written by human beings. Human beings work for companies that have, that have goals. And human beings also have biases that get brought to bear. Um, and this this is brought home to us constantly when we see these stories about the tech industry and the way that the tech industry apparently thinks about women or that it, it the way that it thinks about diversity. And so it's it they have they come from a, a specific place. And when they create the systems like any system, it reflects the bias of the creator. So that was that was that was that was how I came to this issue was because of my concerns about the questions of dependence. And as I got deeper and deeper into the subject, um, I started to study the, uh, the, the, the sayings, the, the thoughts, the speeches that were given by the, 
the men who run these companies. Um, so much of tech reporting, so much of tech journalism is about the latest product launch. It's about, it's about the new features on the iPhone. It's about uh, whatever Google is giving out to its designers next. But really, when you listen to Larry Page or you listen to Mark Zuckerberg, uh, to a much lesser extent, if you listen to Jeff Bezos, they say incredible things. They talk about human nature. They talk about civilization. They talk about our future as human beings. And they have a really strong point of view. And it's, it's, you don't have to be conspiratorial to kind of see that the tech companies are trying to lead us to a new and what they perceive to be a better place. You just have to read what these guys write. And so I sat and I watched their YouTube, YouTube footage of them endlessly. And what I discovered as I, I had a revelation as I was watching them. Um, and the revelation was that we think about si Silicon Valley, we think about tech as being dominated by libertarians. And it is true, there are a lot of libertarians who run tech companies. But when I listened them talk about, about the world, I, I came to the conclusion that they were almost the opposite of libertarians. They aspired for the world to get brought together in one, for everything to be joined together into perfect systems. It's, everything is crowdsourced. It's, um, it's, social, it's social media. It's not individual media. It's, everything is about collaboration. And most importantly, it's about the network. They, they fetishize the network. Everything is collectivist. It's all about us getting stuck together into uh, a hive mind, really. I mean, that's, that's kind of their platonic ideal, is that we're just, we're, we're, there's going to be the wisdom of the crowds. And that's, that, that, there's some similarities to libertarian thinking in it, uh, but libertarians are supposed to be sensitive. I'm not a libertarian, but libertarians are supposed to be sensitive to individuals and individuality. But these companies are the opposite. They have no sensitivity to individuals and individuality. And we can see this in, in, in every aspect of their existence nearly, that they want, they're rolling privacy. They have so little concern for privacy, which is the basis for our individuality. Um, they, they, they don't really care about the idea of individual authorship, which is a really important concept, that if I, if I, write, if I write words, they're my property. They belong to me and because they need to have integrity that I can protect. But they want words to be kind of mashed up and cut up and, 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 and open to anyone to kind of buy and sell, or not buy and sell, but to do whatever they want with. And they have their own business reasons for that to be the case. They think that monopoly is the platonic ideal of capitalism. They don't understand the importance to have to have of having competitive markets, of the dangers of having private power so concentrated in so, so many, such so few pockets. Um, when it comes to the whole question of free will, which is which is the very core of what it means to be an individual, they want us to uh, to increasingly make choices on the basis of algorithms, which is to say they don't want us to make choices at all. They want us to be they want us to be liberated from the process of making choice. And some of this is innocuous. And so we need to say at the outset that the technologies that these guys have created are some of the most amazing 
examples of human creativity and human ingenuity that the world has ever seen. Google is, is a phenomenal creation of, 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 of human beings, that you can type in any query and get, it, get an answer of some sort in, in milliseconds. They managed to organize knowledge in a way that nobody's ever done before. Um, the iPhone is, 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 a, is a wonder of engineering. But just because they've created magical devices doesn't mean that we should treat them in a magical sort of way. Um, we need to apply the same skepticism to these devices and these companies that we apply to every other human endeavor. Um, and we need, to, we, need to treat the, we need to treat them with skepticism. There needs to be a process of creating countervailing powers so that nobody has the run of the field. Um, and uh, I think we also just need to understand precisely what we're dealing with. So let's, let's just talk about the question of addiction, which, which yeah, is a question that I didn't, it didn't really, it didn't really, um, it's so obvious when we deal with these, these devices. And, and in a way, it's obviousness um, kind of uh, prevented, prevented me from going there first in my exploration of this topic. But really, I've come to see that it's almost everything. So when it comes to our phones, it's, I, I, I shudder to think at how many times I check my phone over the course of a day. Of course, there are apps that you can use to measure that. <laughs> but um, um, I'd rather not have that data. <laughs> Actually, it probably would be very good for me to have that data because maybe it would scare the crap out of me enough that I would, um, I would, I would throw my phone into Puget Sound. Um, so we, we're all addicted to it. And it's, and it's, and it's, almost, um, it's almost physiological the way that we're addicted to it. So if our phone is in the other room, we start to feel anxious. We, 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 we need it attached to our sides. Uh, I mean, I don't want to. I, I bet a lot of people in this room sleep with their phones, um, and not not like that. <laughs> uh, you're 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 sick if that's what you're doing. Uh, well, actually, I guess pornography phones. It probably. Uh, um, uh, I never told that joke before, and it's not that good. But <laughs> now I'm suddenly embarrassed that I went there. Um, uh, but, 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 but the other thing is that uh, there's, this is a phenomenon I, I learned about yesterday. There's a guy I met when I was, I was just in San Francisco for the book tour. I met a guy called Tristan Harris who had a startup called Aperture and his co company got bought by Google and he worked for Google and he came something like Google's ethicist in chief, I think was his title. And then eventually he was so horrified by what he saw Google was doing in terms of just perpetrating addiction, he ended up leaving and starting an organization called Time Well Spent, which is trying to help people cope with their addictions to technology. And um, so one of the th things that he told me is, you know about the phantom buzz. And I was like, oh my god, I totally know about the phantom buzz, which is that you have this sensation that your phone is, is, is buzzing, that there's a notification that's happening, and it isn't actually there because the phone just kind of is meant to elicit these kinds of anxious, neurotic responses. Um, and the, what he points out and what I, po what I point out in the book is that if you look at a lot of this, let's, let's talk about Facebook again. Facebook is addicting you by design. 
It's this is not just because they've created something that's so awesome you can't live without it. What Facebook has done is, and, and all these companies have done, but let's we're talking about Facebook. Facebook has amassed a portrait of the inside of your mind. They've followed you everywhere. You don't even know where they followed you <laughs> uh, because uh, they've they've um, they've they've watched everything that you've read. Every page when they created the like button. One of the reasons that they created it is that every, every person who had a website would stick a like button on their page in order to drive up their Facebook traffic. But that like button became a way of tracking you. They could follow how you were behaving on each page that had a like button. Facebook takes this information and they're even aggregating it with um, your behavior offline. They know, they, they, they know about your your purchases in stores uh, because they're able to take that information from elsewhere and combine it together. And the sum total of this is really profound. Um, they know your habits. Um, Eric Schmidt, who is the chairman of Google, said within 24, that they can predict with a fairly high degree of certainty where you'll be 24 hours from now. Um, and so privacy is something that we kind of consider in the abstract, but we really never consider in the particulars. And our, our failure to appreciate that, I think, is, um, is going to come back to bite us in the tuchus. Um, I, I read an article this morning in The Guardian uh, by a woman who, with the help of some EU lawyers, was able to use EU privacy laws to get her data from Tinder, which is the dating hookup app. And... She said it was it was 800 pages of, of 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 data that had every message that she'd sent to um, a prospective date. It had um, it had everything that she liked on Facebook and so on and so forth. And it filled her with an incredible sense of shame because because the things that we do online, the questions that we ask of Google are things that we never expect anybody else to know. Um, the, the text messages that we send uh, to a friend are things that we never expect will escape into the public sphere. Um, uh, the, the times that we look at, you know, if you're, do you, do you want to know how many times your spouse has looked at their ex, ex-boyfriend's uh, Facebook page? <laughs> they're, they're, they're secrets. We, we are telling, we're confiding in these machines, oftentimes in ways that we would never confide in a human being, because our expectation is that nobody will ever know. So Google takes all of, Facebook takes all of your secrets, they take all of your habits, and they, 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 they use it to try to keep you engaged on their site for as long as possible. They, because Facebook, let me just explain something about Facebook. So Facebook is a giant feedback loop. You've told, you know, Facebook is trying to, trying to give you exactly what you want oftentimes in order to keep you coming back. Facebook is elevating information with its algorithms that is designed to play to your anxieties because they found that making you anxious is one of the best ways to um, keep you coming back to their site. So like if, if you looked at my Facebook page, you would see that um, my Facebook newsfeed, you would see there was a lot of 
uh, articles about parenting and, and about how you're doing a, a crap job of raising your child. And, 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 and I think that's, that's generally the case. Or um, let's go to the realm of politics, where I think that this is the most disturbing. Um, we live in very, very polarized times. So it's hard to see the ways in which Facebook is increasing conformity in the world. But we live in what, what's been called filter bubbles. So if you are, if you're a liberal, you're getting, you're getting essentially liberal news um, thrown at you. If you're, if you're, a, if you're a right winger, you're getting right wing news thrown at you constantly. You're not getting, you're not getting stuff from the other side. And sometimes you're not even, you're not getting, most of the time you're not even getting the, the, the neutral stuff in the middle. You're getting the things that tell you exactly what you want to hear. And I can't overemphasize the degree to which that's dangerous. It's, it's dangerous because um, when, you, when, you, when you're hearing what you want to hear all the time, you become inured to conspiracy theory. You become inured to fake news. You become inured to, to, to propaganda. You become highly susceptible to demagogic appeals. And I don't even think I need to point to you <laughs> the object lessons that prove my case. Um, and so uh, right now, Facebook is coming under severe scrutiny because the way that their system operates is, is coming into full view. It's a world in which they took zero moral responsibility for the information that's flow that flowed to the people who use Facebook. And it's an like, it, there's an incredible percentage of Americans who rely on Facebook as their primary source of news and information. Um, so that's, <laughs> that's, that, that's part of the story. Um, I try to, I try to tell the story in a way to explain the history of it all, the way in which, um, uh, when it, the, the introduction kind of captured some of this, the ways in which a lot of our ideals about technology grow from our ideals for, for human civilization. They're really, there's some really noble and profound sentiments at the core of our technology. One of the interesting accidents of Silicon Valley is that Silicon Valley is, uh, is the, mid the, the mid part of the San Francisco Peninsula. And in the 1960s, you had the Grateful Dead and you had LSD. At the same time, you had Apple and the development of the personal computer and the invention of the internet. And in the late 1960s, you had hundreds of thousands of Americans going out to communes. You especially had that in Northern California. And the ideal of the commune is incredibly beautiful. It's this idea that we would we could create these utopian communities where uh, we would we would interact with one another and interact with the land differently. And so there was a guy called Stuart Brand who created something called the Whole Earth Catalog, which his idea was that he would sell tools to the people who lived in the communes, and that tools were actually essential to making the communes work. And, and the Whole Earth Catalog was fantastically successful. It was one of the shock, shock publishing phenomenons of the late 60s, early 70s. And, uh, and Brand helped conceptualize um, some of the ideology of the communes that then became the ideology of the technology industry. Steve Jobs called the Whole Earth Catalog the Bible of his generation. 
And um, the idea was that, you know, technology is, is what ails the world, and we need new technologies to help liberate us from the old technologies. And in that time, you had, you had IBM represented the computer, and the computer was this big, oppressive box. There was, it was, in order to use the computer, you had to use punch cards, you had to go up to a window where there were guys with skinny ties and white jackets who processed your punch cards, and the computer was highly connected to the military industrial complex. And so there was this idea that you could, you could, we could get rid of that old oppressive idea of technology with, with new technologies. And Brand actually was the guy who came up with the idea of the personal computer. It, it, he didn't invent the personal computer, but he saw what was happening in the labs in Silicon Valley, and he said, oh, this is what's happening. We're taking technology. The computer is going from being this implement of bureaucratic monopolies and, and armies to becoming this, this tool of personal liberation. And he looked at what was happening with video games, and he said, oh, man, these guys are achieving a new state of consciousness. It's kind of like what was happening uh, to, the, to my groovy comrades over in the communes. Um, and so I tell this story because tech, you know, our hopes for technology are, ex are just so profound. Um, we, we expect so much of it. But we don't realize is that um, the network. The network was the idea of the commune, that you would connect everybody together in the world through technology. And again, a beautiful, beautiful concept, but it was also the basis for the, the, the biggest business opportunity in humankind. And so um, the idea of, of, of a network where all, we're all tied together and we're all connected and we're all achieving a state of global consciousness is great when it's, uh, you know, it's a utopian thing done by a bunch of hippies. But when big firms capture the network and control the network, it becomes the basis for monopoly. There's no, there's no second place in the network. That's the theory in Silicon Valley, um, that, that once one firm captures the network, everybody else should just pack it in and, and because there's no way that you can compete with, with that first player. Um, so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to finish, finish my spiel, and then I'll turn this open to questions. And I, I just want to finish my spiel by talking about the idea of determinism, that in some ways, when we think about technology, we think about the trajectory of everything. Uh, we say, all right, well, you know, maybe, maybe privacy is not going to survive, but there's nothing that I as an individual can do about it. Well, maybe technology is going to destroy institutions, and there's really nothing that I can do about it. I, I'm actually, so I look at all the books on the wall here, and I actually see a sign of hope that uh, when Amazon introduced the Kindle uh, in 2008, I think it was, uh, there were all these predictions that paper books were doomed. Like, wh who would want these books when you, you could get every volume in the world in, you know, in a flash on, on any device that you were looking for? It would, it would save clutter. It's just the most incredible convenience. It would be profoundly cheaper than, than these books on the wall. But lo and behold, what happened? We, we, didn't, we, di we didn't roll with that. <laughs> we didn't accept that as our fate. And as, uh, you know, all these, these predictions that these books would disappear, well, e-book sales have plateaued and actually started to decline. 
and paper book sales inch up a little bit every year. Why is this the case? Well, we can credit the publishing industry. The publishing industry, unlike media, said we're not gonna we're not gonna let the find the, the the economic value of our product get degraded. And so they went to war with Amazon over the price of a book. They didn't accept that information has to be free. Um, secondly, I think everyone in this room who still reads paper books has an instinct. It's subconscious, but I think it's it's real. And I and I tried to to figure out for myself, why was it that I kept reading paper? Because when the Kindle came, I thought it was great. I was like, oh my, I, I, love, I love a bookstore more than anything. And I have a bookstore in my pocket now. This is, this, is, this is incredible. But really, the mind, I live on screens all day long. You live on screens all day long. We can't, I think we understand as human beings that we can't be human fully if, if we're distracted constantly, if we're being notified, pinged and dinged constantly, if our attention is constantly being commandeered by people, that we know that in order to think, we need to decouple ourselves from the company store. We need to, we need to have a moment to be by ourselves. And books are the most profoundly private space. Um, when books were, I mean, where do we read books? Well, I read books in bed. I read books in the bathtub. You don't need to think about that image. I, 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 read, I read books in, uh, when I'm kind of uh, locked away in my, my office and I'm sitting in an easy chair and, and I'm, not being, I'm not being distracted. That's the history of reading. Reading started out with, with priests who had technical knowledge, who there were, there, were, there were no spaces between words. Reading was, was an exceedingly complicated activity that had to almost be, be practiced aloud. Nobody read silently. But then over time, words started to have spaces between them. Everybody learned how to read more or less, and it changed, it changed humanity. We, we stopped being people who thought collectively and took dictates from the people who were who were reading to us and when we started to read in our own corners in our own spaces we were able to formulate our own opinions you're able to think subversively when you when you're when you're with a book you're able to uh, you know who knows how the hell our mind works but uh, you know when when you're when you're when you're reading a book um, your mind is lighting up and concentrating and in a translate state and all these things are happening, but it, it, I think it's a moment when, when, when we're, we're truly alive as human beings. And that becomes even more important now because we're trapped in these systems where it, it feels like you, 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 you can't, you're, you're out of control, but when you're with a book, you feel like you're in control. And to me, this is the metaphor, which is that um, the rise of something like Uber we, we say, all right, this is a really great technology, but we're just going to let it, and, and we know maybe it does some terrible things, but we'll just let it run its course because who wants to get in the way of innovation? But then London steps in and London says, you know what? We don't like the way that you treat workers. We don't like that you're a lawless com a company that disobeys the same set of rules that we make everybody else follows. And if you want to play ball here, if you want to, if you want to drive your cars in London, you're going to have to behave in a way that's consonant 
with what we deem to be the common good. Mark Zuckerberg needs to be called to account for fake news, for Russian propaganda, for this system, this addictive system that's he, that he's created. We don't need to go all the way to breaking up his company, although that's something we might want to consider. But, but he need, let's just have him testify before the Senate, because Mark Zuckerberg has never been, never had to answer for his behavior. He exists in a world where he's an engineer who's created what he believes is the most perfect system. And so he doesn't necessarily see the ways in which his system might have beautiful internal logic, but might be sucky for human beings. Um, I look at the take, take a knee protest this last week in the NFL, and you know we, we sometimes feel so impotent and inert in the face of power or in the face of bullies or in the face of, the, and, and here was an example of collective action that happened almost spontaneously and in the most unlikely way where even um, even owners, Trump Trump supporting owners of NFL teams got sucked into it. I know that's different than what I'm talking about, but really it's the same because these machines are, are both incredible, but they suck away our sense of agency. The way that technology has been conceived in this country in this country is both beautiful and liberating, but also profoundly enslaving. And so we just need to, th th we're, we're going into a future where a lot of profound changes are going to be happening to us as human beings. You know, as I said, we're, these guys want to have us merge with machines. We've always had technology. We've always had tools. We've had hammers. We've had plows. But what's being automated right now isn't upper body strength. It's mental functions are being automated right now. And, 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 and we wear technology on our wrists. We wear it on the bridge of our nose if it's Google Glass. These guys want to implant technology eventually inside of our bodies. And um, we're going we're gonna to be transformed as a species. And some of those transformations will be good. Some of them will be profoundly bad. But the point is that we can't afford to simply accept things as they come. Because it's, it's, it, 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 these changes are not happening in the public interest. They're happening in the interest of a handful of powerful corporations. And so as human beings, we need to be firm. We need to be thoughtful. We need to understand what it is we're, we, 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 we want to survive in these transformations and what it is we're perfectly happy to give away. Um, and and, and it's, it's, it's the really hard conversations to have because the solutions are complicated and not apparent and we're all addicted in ways in which we feel like we – we're trapped. We're human guinea pigs. We feel like human guinea pigs sometimes in a grand experiment that somebody is conducting on us. But if we're human guinea pigs, we're also human. And I think we need to, to stand up and reclaim the human. So why don't we, uh, if people have questions, I'd be happy to take them. Yeah. So the question is, are there, are there, are there outlets for activism and resistance? I'm not just repeating you for the sake of repeating you. I'm yeah. doing it for the, yeah. <laughs> um, so um, right now, um, you know, they're not, as far as, as far as I can tell, not really. Because <laughs> we're, we're in the early stages. Our politics are being transformed in supremely interesting ways in, 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 the, in the last couple months. 
because um, so I'll, 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 I'll admit this. It might not be popular in, in a Seattle crowd, but I actually went on Fox News to talk about they had me on to talk about my book. Um, and no, you have to you have to I mean, we can't just kind of give up on the process of changing people's minds. We have to we have to. I mean, it's, that's a problem right now. That, that is the filter bubble problem is where we stopped we stopped talking to one another. And they were really interested in the question of monopoly and, and the power of these tech companies. And they might not be coming at it for the best of reasons, but it, I looked back at the um, fa- founding manifesto for the National Review magazine uh, in the 1950s. And there was a paragraph, and that's the magazine that created American conservatism, William F. Buckley's magazine. There was no conservatism before National Review. And in that founding manifesto, <laughs> there was a paragraph about the dangers of monopoly because conservatives understand that concentrations of power can be dangerous when they come in the form of the state and they can be dangerous when they come in the form of the corporation. And so it's going to divide the left. Barack Obama, for, for all of his greatness, was terrible on these issues. <laughs> he... Um, the, the company that went in the Oval Office more than any other in the Obama administration was Google. And when it came to basic questions, like should these companies pay their taxes, he took their side. Um, now, just on the question of taxes, which is, uh, to me, just one of the most galling questions of them all, Amazon pays 13% effective tax. That's state federal, municipal, and international. I have very little sympathy for Walmart, but Walmart pays 30% effective tax rate. So if Walmart is being disadvantaged against Amazon to that extent, you know, how is Elliott Bay Books being disadvantaged when it comes to competing against Amazon? And just consider, consider the, the, the implications of that. They are, they're basically plundering us, plundering the coffers of the state taking advantage of us in order to build their monopolies. And then they say, bow down before us because we've created such incredible corporations. You know, but, but really, Amazon became powerful because they didn't pay state, state tax. That was one of their big tricks. And, and it became impossible for a lot of brick-and-mortar stores to c- compete against them. And they're, they're st- I'm not just... I'm not just uh, pontificating about this or pulling this out of thin air. There, there are studies by economists that, that document how that's the case. Um, so I'm giving you um, just more reasons to be angry and less, less possibility of, of hope and solutions. Like being angry is part of the solution at this stage. I, I, I totally think so. I mean, it's, it's so, you know, if this is, this, is, this is not exactly the right comparison, but I mean, in order to... In order to do something about climate change, you first need to ignore, acknowledge the fact that the planet's climate is changing. And I think that broadly right now our um, culture regards these companies as pretty fabulous. Maybe there's some elites who have problems with these companies, but if you do the polling, um, most, people, most people really like these guys. Um, taking a pessimistic view um, because I wasn't pessimistic enough. <laughs> and assume we're not able to rein in these companies, um, which seems like a definite possibility. Uh, where do you think we'll be in, say, 10 years? 
So let me give you a counterfactual um, to your counterfactual. Um, so I think that um, there's going to be a moment where, which I call in the book the big one, where all, all of your information is sitting out there. They're bad actors trying to get it constantly. And right now we've been hacked in ways that are kind of abstractly terrible. Equifax is bad, but a lot of people were vulnerable. But who, who's lost, you know, who's, who's been cheated at the stage? Who were the bad actors? There's a lot that, that's kind of ambiguous about the hack, or it isn't something that we, we really feel viscerally. Um, it was pretty bad that our election was hacked, I would argue, but, but we haven't really focused on the technology. You know, that, that's, we're starting to focus on Facebook, because, and, and so that, that's actually awakening us to the dangers of Facebook. But when you, when you think about the scenario that I was describing where all your secrets are there, and let's say there's a, a, a database that's created where you can, your entire browsing history becomes available, I think that that would that would piss people off in a pretty big sort of way, and I think that the reason we need to start thinking about a lot of these things now is you never know when the crisis is going to happen, and when the crisis does happen, we need to have good, thoughtful solutions in the can ready to go, just as the financial crisis gave the opportunity for Elizabeth Warren's Consumer Financial Protection Board to suddenly spring into action. She'd been thinking about that for a long time. She would have never been able to get that past the interest in Congress in any other situation except for in a crisis. Um, one thing that I find profoundly maddening is that there is no law in this country that protects data. Europeans got laws that protect data. We have laws that protect your health records, some of your financial records, but there's no law protecting data. And I think that we need to actually reformulate the way that we think about data. Um, the analogy, one analogy that I like is the environment. So in this country, we let companies do bad things to the environment, but we say you don't own the environment. You can exploit the environment. You can do, you can pollute to a certain extent, but if you're going to mess, if you're going to, if you're going to exploit the environment to make process, uh, profit, you need to treat the environment as a public as a public good. And so we impose very stringent rules about, about pollution and, 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 and about logging and about other, all sorts of other things. Data, it does not, companies treat data as if they own it. But why should they own my data? The data, the data, the data is a picture of my mind. It's, it's, a, it's a portrait of my habits. Why should Google, Facebook, Amazon, be the why should that be their property? The data needs to be treated like the environment. It, it it is a public it is a public good, and anybody who uses data needs to be subjected to very very strict regulations. They, they they need to be they need to act as if they are trustees for the data. This is this is that's a concept we use in other areas of the law, um, and it's it enables government to act in a very in a, in a very protective sort of way, it, you know, in, in, if government is doing its job. Um, uh, so, yeah, I think, I think it, there's a good chance we could continue to, to drift along. But I look also at what I was saying again about the changing politics, that there's so much free-floating anger in our society right now. 
Um, the politics of the Democratic Party are changing really quickly on these issues. So we're going from Barack Obama's view of worshiping Google to a very different sort of view where monopoly has suddenly returned as a fascination of the Democratic Party who are trying to tap into populist anger and trying to lead it to a useful sort of place. So I, just in the course of my reporting, I've talked to uh, Chuck Schumer or Elizabeth Warren about about monopoly. Um, Cory Booker is a great example. Cory Booker took a lot of money from Facebook to try to remake the Newark schools. But, Cor even, but Cory Booker has begun to say that, you know what, we need to take action against these companies. And I met a guy from Google, and, and I, he was complaining about this. And he said, you know what, Cory Booker is taking that position because that is, that's going to be the default position of the Democratic Party. And it scared Google. It scares Google. Yeah. So the question is, what's the role of the individual in this system? Uh, and I, and I, was at Stan I was at Stanford the other day, and I gave my pitch. And this grad student stood up. And she said, how can, how can the social media companies better organize my news feed so that I escape the filter bubble? And I thought, why are you relying on Facebook to help you escape the filter bubble? You are a free agent who can actively, you're a graduate student at Stanford, you can, you can actively seek out better information. And, and really, um, this goes to, you know, as citizens, as citizens, we have to make we have to make really important choices constantly in this country. We have to vote. And citizens will make bad decisions if they, have, if, they, if they only have access to bad information. And what you're saying, if citizens are indifferent about, about improving themselves as citizens. Um, the great hero of my book at the very end is the Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis, who, uh, who existed, who, he lived in... He, he was a lawyer in the late 19th century and a Supreme Court justice in the 20th century. And he's my hero for, because he came up with, he, he came up with a lot of our concepts of anti-monopoly. He created a lot of the, 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 the underlying ideas of antitrust. And he came up with our idea of privacy. He wrote the first article in, in, a, in a Harvard Law Review about privacy as a, as a private lawyer. And then as a Supreme Court justice, he kept refining what it meant what privacy meant, and, and he came as close as anyone to kind of getting, getting at the important nub of privacy. But he, it was all tied together for him, privacy, monopoly, all tied together in an idea that he said the, the ultimate end of the state should be to create the conditions whereby each individual can develop his or her own faculties, which he meant was that you, the, the end of the state should be to create space where we have the capacity to think, contemplate, improve ourselves so that when we have to cast ballots in elections, we're capable of making good democratic decisions where we think for ourselves. I mean, what, what, this is really esoteric, but the reason he, he worried about monopolies was that he worried that, um, I mean, he was worried that, that, that monopolies would achieve so much political power that they'd be able to reshape the system to achieve their own ends. But he was also worried about what happened when there are not very many corporations around and, you, and everybody ends up working for the same corporation and, 
you become you become nervous about your, you don't feel like you can move jobs and you feel like you need to appease your employer. And if your employer tells you to vote one way, you just do whatever your employer tells you to do out of fear. Now, that's not my biggest fear, but I think it's an interesting thing to, to, to think about and, and gets at this concept, which is that we, we can't just passively accept the fact that we have a bad, we, we have a bad media environment in a lot of ways uh, that each of us can make much better choices about the media we consume. It's hard to escape the addictive nature of these technologies, but all of us could do better if we if we tried. I, I refuse to accept that we're living um, that that the kind of the the Pavlovian responses that they're trying to create within us are are, are inescapable. Um, once we become aware of the problem. We, we have to set up we have to set about improving ourselves and trying to buck the problem um, I think we have time for one more question if there is one more question yes can you recommend any authors or advocates if we individuals are trying to encourage or obfuscate our data um, well I would I would Definitely check out uh, Tristan Harris's Time Well Spent site. There, there's so many. Um, so what he what he gets is just this idea that they're, they're they're gunning for your attention, and you can you can actually set up your devices pretty easily in ways in which you you disadvantage them in that sort of game. So this is really really basic, but turn off your notifications, and you know don't don't let them. Don't let them buzz you constantly and make you pick the thing up thinking that you're getting a text message from your sister, but really it's, it's a notification from, yeah, from Facebook or whatever. Uh, so that's really, that's, really, that's really basic. And then, um, uh, I mean, I think it's worth, I think we need to start looking, we need to, we need to all understand what the Europeans are doing in terms of privacy, and we need to start advocating for some, some sort of American version of that. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Franklin Fower is a staff writer at The Atlantic and former editor of The New Republic. His latest book is World Without Mind, The Existential Threat of Big Tech. He spoke at the Elliott Bay Book Company on September 27th. Thank you again to Sonia Harris for our recording. You can hear the full recording on our website, KUOW.org. Tune in again soon.